Well, first family, I bring you greetings from the church family, Grays Creek Baptist Church in Denham Springs, Louisiana. You may say, I never heard of it. Well, I bet you if you've driven on I-12 and through Baton Rouge, then you saw the Bass Pro Shop. Grays Creek is right behind it, pastored by the Reverend David Brown, or as he's better known in our household, Dad, my wife's father and uh, Joshua's grandpa and my father-in-law. We were privileged to serve there last week, and we're awfully glad to be home. We rejoice that God brought us our friend Joel Gregory. For you guys that had heard Joel before, you knew what you were getting into. I've heard from some of you that didn't, and you said, Darren, that man's voice, it sounds like God himself. Doesn't it, though? I remember the first time I heard Joel preach, I was quite young, and I, I remember thinking, if, if that's what it means to be a preacher, then I probably better quit now. I don't think I'm going to measure up. But praise the Lord for Joel and for his leadership here. I know uh, that many of you were blessed by his word, and I, I'm grateful for your patience while we were gone. Let's take our Bibles out in Revelation 9. My friend Clark read it so well just a moment ago. We arrive now at the seven trumpets, the sixth one. This is now the third part of this trumpet section that we are in. Have you ever heard the expression, things can only get better? Praise the Lord. Didn't we see some of that this week? I woke up one morning about 3 o'clock, and it was raining. I thought the rapture had come. And then when I woke up again four hours later, it was still raining. Praise the Lord. Man. Then there's the alternative. Things can only get worse. You know, I, I've got a picture that I think I brought with me. This picture, evidence that things can always get worse. It's from Louisiana, I believe. It's not bad enough they flooded out, but their house caught on fire as well. Maybe some of you can identify with that. When we start our passage today, we arrive at verse 12, and it is a moment that reminisces us with pictures like that. Here's what it says. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. It's been a couple of weeks since we talked, so let's refresh our memory. In the, the, the trumpets we had before now, things happened earthquakes and floods and disasters. People died and there was all kinds of awful things. It is as if the Lord is telling our friend the Apostle John, you ain't seen nothing yet. To that, I want us to pause and say, remember the purpose of Revelation. It is a word of encouragement to the faithful that things will not always be as they are. And it is at the same time a word of warning to those who are outside of Christ, that this will not always be the way things are. It's the same communication, just heard very differently. Well, today we have pegged out, if you will, over on this side, a word of warning. In the passage that we will take today, we'll see angels released. We'll see their awful purpose. We will get a sneak peek into hell, and we will end with some good news. Let's start right here with a word of prayer. Join me as we do so. Gracious Jesus, thank you for your word. My prayer today, Lord, is that you would remind us that even if it's a difficult word, it is a word of love. 
It is a word that says, you care about us too much to leave us ignorant of what is coming. So you've offered us this word of encouragement, this word of warning. Let us receive it, Lord, with wisdom. We know, Lord Jesus, that you are in charge, that your wisdom is intact, that your strength is secure, and that we can rest in who you are, no matter what might come. And so, Jesus, today, we proclaim your goodness, we proclaim your mercy, we proclaim your love, even as we walk through this passage. We ask you, Lord, your mercy today. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So when we move on from verse 12, we find the sixth trumpet. At the sixth trumpet, four avenging angels are released for a terrifying purpose. See it starting in verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Let's take a look at these angels who were at the golden altar as if they are bound there because indeed, according to the word of God, they are. This is the same altar that we saw back in chapter 8. In chapter 8, it's where we saw the prayers of the saints being lifted up. It's the altar where the incense was burned. This is the place where the angels have been secured. Now, there's a strong suspicion that these angels are not heavenly angels, but rather wicked ones. For if they were heavenly angels, why would they need to be bound? They are tied there as if they are being leashed up for just such a moment. In apocalyptic literature and other places, we see wicked angels bound, and this is the first of three times that we'll see it in Revelation. We'll see it twice more in Revelation 20. Here's another thing we can say about these angels. We know where they came from. We know that the river Euphrates You can go there today. The Tigris and the Euphrates are in what we call the Fertile Crescent, a place that is well known to us. Not only is it well known to us, but it's well known to history. In the days of the Roman Empire, it was the line of demarcation, if you will, the border separating the Roman Empire on one side from the Parthian Empire on the other. Is this then the marshalling point Is this the historical Parthians who were coming to attack? It seems possible. We don't know that for sure, but some have suggested that here is what Ezekiel talked about in his prophecy as Gog and Magog and their awful moment of time. The angels prepared for this hour come with a purpose to destroy one-third of humanity. I want you to think about that for just a second. Let's just say that that's eight billion people, the total population of our world. That means two and a half billion people are dead. 
because of the work of these four angels. If that doesn't overwhelm you, then I invite you to hear it again. Two and a half billion people dead. This, this is why they were prepared. Did you see it there in verse 15? They had been prepared for this hour, the day, the month, and the year. They were released. Now, let's pause here and get some good news, because heaven knows we could use it. Amen? Here's what I want you to take home. God is still in charge. I want you to see this now. Who bound those angels to the altar? It better be somebody stronger than the angels, reckon? God bound those angels to the altar. Who prepared them for this hour, this moment, this day? God did. Under whose authority are they released? Who gives the command to let them go? God does. Now you might say, but Darren, this is an awful mission that they came for. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. And yet, let us rejoice that God is still in charge. These things don't catch him by surprise. He's not sitting in heaven wringing his hands going, what will we do next? He's planned this in his heart to bring all things right. You know, making all things right sometimes means we have to take some drastic steps. Herein is one. Would God go back all the way to the Garden of Eden? Would God have made humanity without sin? Then none of this would be necessary. Would God have made them without free choice where they couldn't choose to sin? Yes, I would pray that very thing. And yet, if you can't choose to sin, then you can't choose to worship either. God wanted a relationship of chosen love, of chosen worship, one who engages with God and says, I choose you, God, not because I must, as if I'm a, a droid or an automaton, but rather because I choose you. God is still in charge. And because he has set all these things in motion, he will make everything right in his time. I want you to take that home with you and put it in your heart because it's easy to feel like that isn't happening. The world seems to be spinning wildly out of control some days, especially over these last few weeks. It seems like every time we turn around, it's more bad news when you come to that moment. Then I want you to say this, maybe even out loud to yourself, God is still in charge. His authority is not diminished. He's not caught by surprise. His authority is still strong. His sovereignty is still in, intact. We can rest because God is still in charge. Here's a second component to this that I want you to take home. God's mercy is still in view. Now you might say, wait a minute, Darren. You just said two and a half billion people will be wiped out because of the work of these angels that God released, knowing what they would do. Not only that, that he sent them for that mission. Can I tell you today, my friends, there's good news. 
It's only a third. It's only a third. God could have wiped out all of them. He withheld his judgment to give those who remain a chance to respond. Now, in our understanding, we would jump on that and say, but wait a minute, it's too late for those. It's too late for that third that God wiped out. Yes, yes, this is true. However, God has given us the book of Revelation and warned us about it in advance. He's put the guideposts all around to say, bridge out, danger, stop. So don't be surprised when God's justice comes to fruition. And don't believe that God is unjust in exacting that when he's warned us for some 2,000 years. The word of God is unchanged. It is the message that we receive that the angels are on their way. Let us prepare accordingly. And if we choose not to, then it is our responsibility, not God's fault. Let us move on in the interest of time. Let's talk about the terrifying number and the appearance of the angels, verses 16 to 19. The number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard that number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. Let's talk about their mounted number. It's an overwhelming number, 200 million. Such a force would mean that out of every three Americans, two of them would be mounted. It's intended to terrify, and can I just pause here to say it's working. When I was preparing to come to you, I was thinking about 200 million soldiers mounted. There's no human capacity to do that, to assemble such a force into the Middle East, into the area around the river Euphrates. Let's step back from it for a moment and talk about how to understand 200 million, because with a number that big, it's kind of hard to grasp. So let's bring it down a little. Let's pretend that AT&T Stadium, where the Dallas Cowboys play football, holds 80,000 people. That's its listed capacity on their website. How many times would you have to fill Cowboys Stadium to get to 200 million? 2,500 times. If the population in Midland is 157,000, like the sign at the airport says, it would take 1,273 Midlands to arrive at that number. If Texas has the 29 million that are listed in last census, it would take seven states the size of Texas to arrive at that number. It's intended to be an overwhelming number, and it indeed is. Can I tell you today, my friends, this force that is marshaled together is meant to overwhelm you and terrify you, and it's working. 
It's not just their number, though. Their appearance is meant to be terrifying. As if their sheer numbers weren't enough, their appearance evokes terror. They come for the purpose of judgment, and it starts just simply by seeing them. The description of the appearance suggests these are not human enemies, but rather supernatural ones. The riders have breastplates of iron, indestructible. The horses have heads like lions, ferocious and devouring. Smoke and sulfur are breathed out by the horses. They have tails like serpents with heads, and they have the capacity to kill. So if you somehow escape being trampled down by the horses, you might think your worries have concluded, and yet that snake at the end might be that which gets you. Here we have that sneak peek of hell as the triple plague. Fire, smoke, and sulfur. Here we have a sneak peek of hell because herein is what we can expect for those who are outside of the relationship that God longs for people to have. Fire, what a horrible way to die. Being burned alive, it has to be one of the worst ways to die. Smoke, smoke inhalation suffocates you from the inside out because your body is deprived of oxygen due to the smoke therein. Sulfur, also translated in some of your versions as brimstone. It is a corrosive agent capable of burning the eyes and the skin. When it burns, it gives off sulfur dioxide. And sulfur dioxide can cause pulmonary edema, the abnormal buildup of fluid in the lungs. Thus, you can drown because of a lack of oxygen brought on by the sulfur. I've heard a great many people over the years joke about going to hell, making light of it. Well, it's where all my friends will be, so I might as well go as well. As if it is a place that is like earth, as if it is a place that is akin to earth and we're just changing geographical locations. Thus, to go from here to there is not much of a transition at all. I want you to see this picture, this sneak peek of hell for what it is. It is not merely a party absent from God's presence, but rather the very fact God is not there is what makes it hell. It is a place of unending punishment for the unrepentant who rejected God. It is a place of unending torment for those who choose to say no to the gracious gift of God's love. It is a reminder, constant and eternal in nature, that God, in his mercy, will indeed let you say no to him forever. And when you do so, don't be surprised when you find yourself separated from God for all eternity. The place where that takes place, it's hell itself. Maybe you saw the article this week in the newspaper. I got emailed, several of you emailed it to me about 
a group that thinks they may have found a planet like hell. Maybe so, maybe so. The scientists have always been looking for it, and there have been a great many estimations about where hell is. I don't know where it is, but I know who's not there. God. And that's what makes it hell. To be separated from his mercy, to be separated from his kindness, to be eternally under his judgment. Friends, I want to be clear with you. I don't want anybody to go there. This sneak peek is enough for me to say, let's build a rescue mission one yard from the gate of hell and lay down our bodies in front of it to make people step over us if they must go to hell. It's easier to say, well, let's focus on those going to heaven. Yes, that will always be easier. But God has called us to something much greater than that, which is to make it hard to go to hell. I want to do that in Midland. How about you? This week, Vacation Bible School, we're doing exactly that. This week, God has given us the opportunity to proclaim his mercy and his goodness and to steal some people back from hell. I want you to pray with me that people will understand even if hell is a quaint joke now and polite people don't talk about it. We're not going to be polite people because we know what's coming. We're going to tell them the truth. And the truth is that hell is a real place. And it's hot. And it's smoky. And it has sulfur. And we don't want you there. Find yourself in heaven instead. All through the mercy and kindness of Jesus. Let's move on with stubborn and unrepentant hearts, some will continue to reject God. Now you would think that when we see what's happened in verses 16 to 19, that people would say, oh my goodness, I better choose to respond to the mercy of Christ, the mercy of God offered to me. I want you to see verses 20 and 21 for what they are. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and the idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. It would make sense that they would make a U-turn Instead, too many are like my dad when we were driving one time. I was a teenager. We were taking a computer class at the University of Texas at Arlington. Understand, this is about 1983, so computers were still relatively new. I was excited because my dad had signed us up for this class. He never finished high school. So this was exciting for him too. The first night we went to UTA to go to the campus, he decided that he would park in this one particular parking lot. Well, I was delighted. It was close to where we were going. It was exciting until my dad went up the out. He went the wrong way up a one way. We were facing traffic. I thought my dad should be repentant. I thought he should turn around, back up, and admit his mistake. Not my dad. A man rolled down his window coming toward us. 
My dad rolled down his. You remember the crank windows? Still see my dad cranking it down. And uh, the man said, sir, this is a one-way street. My dad looked back at him and said, I'm only going one way. And we kept on moving. I've never wanted to die more in my life than at that moment right there. I was too big to get under the seat, but I certainly tried. Now, we can laugh about that, and believe me, my dad did. He's told that story for years now. Every time it gets better, and he laughs harder every time he tells it. It's amusing, unless it's spiritual. Can I tell you today, my friends, don't be that way. Don't find yourself headed the wrong way and let your pride get the best of you. You see, these are the things they were doing. They chose not to repent after everything they'd seen. No, instead, they doubled down on what they were doing. Demon worship means idolatry is running amok. While still under God's authority, Satan's work continues unabated. Satan's always wanted to be worshipped. See it in Matthew chapter 4 as Jesus is talking with him. And here the moment arises in a new way. Satan's pouring gas on this fire by saying, hey, if the God who is supposed to be so merciful did all that, he's not really merciful at all. It's not that revolutionary that people will worship something other than God. What's new, and in our common culture now, is the persistence and demand in doing so. They demand to worship something other than God. We see it in the rising secularism all around us. And if we push back and we say, wait a minute, that's not in keeping with God's law, then we are branded a hater. Worse yet, intolerant. Friends, there are some things that just shouldn't be tolerated. These are some of them. Thus, Romans chapter 1, verses 23 to 27 find its fullest expression. These are given what they demanded. Verse 21, immorality of every kind increases murder, theft, sorceries. Sorceries is an interesting word. It translates the word pharmakia. Some have suggested maybe this is drug use. It's a hardening of the heart like Pharaoh. Read Exodus chapter 6 and following. There you'll find our friend Moses going repeatedly to Pharaoh, saying, let my people go. And he hardens his heart each time and says, no. Despite the plagues befalling him, penalizing his people, his heart is even more hardened. They'd rather these like Pharaoh be their own God, worship their own truth, rather than surrender their own limited, small-minded authority over their own small lives. If we don't learn anything else from Revelation, let it be this, we are not in charge. Our eternity is under God's mercy. Let us bring this to a close. I want you to take home a couple of things with you. One, all people are under God's sovereign hand, but not all people 
will choose God. We all have the same opportunity. God has given us the opportunity to respond to his act of mercy. If you ask people to identify the cross of Christ, I bet every one of them can do so, at least in the United States. We know the cross and we know what it means. We just, many of us, choose to reject it. And why do we do that? Because it means we surrender some of our sovereignty to the one who always has been sovereign, the one who always will be sovereign. All people are under God's sovereign hand, but not all will choose God. That's a hard reality. Some will harden their hearts, but others will receive the warning and repent. They'll choose to go a new direction. Let me conclude with this. God longs for all people to come to him. Don't make the mistake that Pharaoh made. Soften your heart in repentance. Because this is the reason, the very moment for which Jesus came. It was for you. It was for you. Maybe you've never thought about yourself as one who is worthy of such a gift, but today I want to tell you it was for you. Jesus came to free you from the fear of what we just read. My prayer today is that you will respond to that. Maybe you have never responded to the mercy and kindness of Christ our Savior. Maybe you've never recognized the sovereignty of God and that you are not in charge. Maybe you are recognizing today that you, you are the one who Jesus is speaking to. Here's what I want you to do. If you're in this building, as soon as we say amen in just a moment, I want you to come right outside and meet me right outside in this welcome center. I'll be waiting for you there. We want to talk with you. We want to talk with you about how you can miss out on hell and get into heaven. Maybe you're not in this building and you'd like to have somebody to talk to just the same. Then I want you to pick up your phone and text the name Jesus to 432-315-0092. Nothing magical or powerful about being in this building. There is, however, about responding to Jesus. Perhaps, just maybe, it's this day that God has given you to change camps, to instead of living in fear of the warning, live in joy of the word of encouragement. Jesus longs for you to make things right. My prayer is that you'll do that now. Pray with me, won't you? Thank you today, Jesus, that we can rejoice because of who you are. Merciful, sovereign, great and mighty in authority, loving, good. It's easy to see how some, Lord, would say otherwise. They look and they see your wrath expressed in these moments and say, I don't want any part of a God who can do that. 
And in a God who is not holy is not a God at all. And holiness demands justice. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you will bring things right. I pray for those, whether they're in this building or not, who need to respond to your invitation today. Let us choose today, right here and now, Jesus, for us to say yes to you. I'm grateful, Jesus, that this day is one you've given us, for we aren't promised any more than right now. You've given us to say yes to you, and so, Jesus, do your work here now. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, and thank you for your mercy, for in it we find hope. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.